Robbie Zacharias told a story one time I enjoyed about a little girl whose mother planned to celebrate her fifth anniversary by showing her off to all her relatives. Before the relatives got there, the mother coached the little girl on what was to happen. As, she arrived, as the folks arrived, this little girl was to prepare to sing a song. Well, the folks arrived and the, the moment came and the mother says, uh, is there something that you'd like to do for us? And the, uh, the daughter says, no. And so the, the mother kind of reaches over and gives her a st- strategic pinch and says, there was something that you were going to do for us, what is it? And the little girl says, nothing. So she promptly marches her upstairs and puts her in a closet. About 30 minutes later, the mother goes back upstairs, opens the closet, and says, what are you doing in here? Because she heard her doing something. And this little girl says, I've been spitting on your clothes. I've been spitting on your shoes, I've spit on the carpet, and I've spit on the wall, and right now I'm waiting for more spit. I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. It starts from a young age, and it ends only when we draw our last breath, but the life of natural man is the life of waiting for spit the life of struggling against our authority. It starts from young as we struggle against our parents, and it doesn't change when we get older. The authority that God has placed us under, we don't like it, no matter who it is. In our own sinful nature, we struggle against that authority. Most of the issues of authority that Peter's taught us about as we worked our way through the book, he focused on in chapter 3, as he talked about submitting to the authority of the government and the authority in the workplace and the authority in the home. But now he gets to an area that probably has the most amount of spit reserved in our culture, and that is the authority of the church. Look at what Peter says here in chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's speaking very clearly at this point to elders. What is meant by the term elder? It doesn't necessarily mean elderly, or as my Caitlin says, olderly. It means, uh, it's, it's a term that refers to a position. Now, a lot of times, elders in a congregation, either Jewish or Christian, were older, Hence, I think that's where we get the name. But it also reflects a position, because you have Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy is considered an elder or an overseer, and yet in the same book, uh, Paul says, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youth. So he was a young man, and yet he was an elder at the same time. I find it fascinating, mostly because it's accurate, that Peter starts here with the word, therefore which forces us to go back and to see why, what implication he's making from what he said before. And the implication, of course, the context, if you were with us last week, the title of our message was uh, The Best Way to Suffer. And so we're talking about in the context of suffering for doing what's right, logically what would come up next in Peter's mind is church leaders. 
Without a doubt, as Peter writes this, it's fascinating because it's accurate. He tells the elders, I exhort you, he says. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I exhort you. Uh, exhort means to encourage. It's, uh, from, it's from an interesting word. You get two little words and you put them together. It means to call and it means alongside. It's the word we have for encourage. It's the same word the Holy Spirit is called our encourager. It's the same idea. And here Peter doesn't, doesn't flout his apostleship, but rather he says, I want to encourage you or exhort the elders among you as I come alongside as your fellow elder. In other words, I've been there. I've done that. I know what it's like. I know the struggles that you're going through. And I want to exhort you. First of all, by the sufferings of Christ, as he says, I've seen the sufferings of Christ, and also in particular of the, of the glory is to be revealed. So you've got, again, the two different extremes. You've got Christ's sufferings, and you've got Christ's glory. And here we are in the middle, uh, not suffering as much as Christ, but certainly not experiencing his glory yet. And Peter says, on the basis of all these things, therefore, and now in verse 2, he says, here's what I'm exhorting you to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Shepherd the flock. Without a doubt, when Peter penned these words, he was thinking back to the time when Jesus Christ said the very same thing to him. Peter had denied him, of course, before Jesus' death and resurrection. And then after the resurrection, up in Galilee, Peter, uh, Jesus appears to Peter, resurrected, and asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. What does Jesus say after that? Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? He asked a second time. Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Actually, the third time he says, do you even like me? Peter was hurt this third time, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, then tend my sheep. The only other time in the New Testament that the word shepherd is used as a command. Here in 1 Peter, and then back at the end of the book of John, when Jesus tells Peter, shepherd my sheep. Now, Peter tells the elders, shepherd Christ's sheep. The only two times. Fascinating. So we know that what was on Peter's mind as he wrote this. And how, is the, uh, how are the elders to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight? A couple of ways to do it and a couple of ways not to do it. First of all, he says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. And that, that means you don't do it because you have to do it, but rather because you want to do it. He says, uh, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but rather with eagerness. We've all had our fill, I think, of those in ministry who have served in ministry for sordid gain or for ill-gotten good, as it were. Peter says that's not to be the case here at all. Financial motivation is not to be the reason that you're involved in ministry. Now, obviously, there are some elders who get paid. Okay, Brian and I both get paid but uh, because we do it full-time. But I guarantee you, we're not in this business for the money. <laughs> 
What are you laughing so loud for, Don? There are, uh, there are others in the secular world with similar experience in education making a whole, whole lot more. And, uh, but I tell you what, I'm not in it for the money, but I wouldn't do anything else because I really feel like this is what the Lord has me doing. And O'Brien feels the same way, and many in ministry are exactly the same. We don't do it for gain, either sorted or not, but rather as best we can with the motives that are pure. John Newton once wrote, The Christian ministry is the worst of all trades, but the best of all professions. He's right. This cartoon shows another potential element of leadership. The players say, Remember when pitchers would walk on their own to and from the mound? And it's this potential danger of leadership as far as elders Peter addresses in the very next verse. As he says in verse 3, Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Here again we return to the issue that's really the context, and that's the issue of authority. You know, it's, it couldn't be clearer in the text that elders in the church have authority in the church, but authority to do what? <clears throat> Not authority to lord it over, but authority to lead by example. To lead by example. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote this to Pope Eugene. He said, Peter could not give you what he had not, what he didn't have. What he had, he gave. That is, the care over the church, not dominion. Again, Peter is teaching the very same thing that Jesus taught him. When Jesus said that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over those allotted to their charge, but it's not to be the way with you. Whoever's to be greatest among you is to be a servant. So here you see the great tension in leadership. And incidentally, all authority is to be coupled with a servant's heart. Or it's not true authority, it's dominion. I love what the police cars have on the side. It says to protect and to serve. Right? And really, biblically, that's what they ought to be doing. You could almost put a little reference. Romans 13 after that. Because that's exactly what Romans 13 talks about. The fact that the government agencies, the government agents are ministers of God, is what the literal, or you could literally translate it, ministers of God for our good. Uh, of course, you've got the other areas of, uh, of authority as well. The, your, your employer is to not to be harsh with you, particularly just because maybe you're a Christian, he's a Christian, he's not to take advantage of that. The husbands are to lay down their lives for the wife, to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And church elders are not to lead as lords, but rather as examples. And so leadership is always coupled with a servant's heart. And Peter does an excellent job here as he exhorts rather than commands. As he says, he is a fellow elder. He doesn't call himself an apostle like he did back in chapter 1. He comes across as an equal rather than as a superior. So here's a principle for us, that is, the church leaders should shepherd the flock with a motivation and a manner of integrity. Two key words there, motivation and manner of integrity. And here's how this works out. If you look at these two, two verses we just looked at, you've got the command, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. 
couple things not. Not under compulsion, not for sordid gain, but voluntarily and with eagerness. This is the motivation. Now the next part is the manner. Not lording over others, but rather leading by example. So both the motivation and the manner, Peter says, of exercising oversight, of shepherding the flock, is to be done with integrity. John Calvin one time wrote in his commentary on 1 Peter, says, There's many hindrances which are sufficient to discourage the most prudent, speaking of church leaders. He says, They have often to do with ungrateful men from whom they receive an unworthy reward. I wonder what he was up against that week. Long and great labors are often in vain. Satan sometimes prevails in his wicked devices. Lest then the faithful servant of Christ should be broken down, there is for him one and only remedy, to turn his eyes to the coming of Christ. So fitting that we should sing the songs that we did, that focused ahead, looking for Jesus coming, looking for my King coming and reigning on the earth. Because that's exactly what Peter points us to in verse 4, when he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And the implication there is, too, that elders, while they have authority in their church, they are not the authority in the church. The chief shepherd is the one over whom, or I should say under whom, the shepherds shepherd the flock. Christ is called the good shepherd. Christ is called the great shepherd. Here Christ is called the chief shepherd. I don't know of anything more repugnant to our nature than, to, than submission. We, uh, we can't stand it. We struggle against it. Again, another fitting cartoon. I'm still going to give you a ticket, he says. We struggle with it, don't we? We loathe it. We struggle with what is given to us because in our own sinful nature we want to be in control. We, we love self-rule. We like to be independent. We like to be in charge. And in a country, the land of the free, home of the brave, where freedom of speech and freedom of everything else we feel like is our God-given right, we even have laws that back up this kind of an independence. And often when we submit, we only submit because we're forced to do, to submit. We don't submit to the government, what happens? They arrest us. Don't submit to our bosses, what happens? They fire us. We don't submit to our parents, what happens? They spank us. What happens when we don't submit to the church? Easy, we just go to another church. See, there's no ramification for that. And so really, on all, of all the, the levels of totem pole, on the totem pole of our submission in our minds, the, uh, that of the church is absolutely at the bottom. And it's often a very great frustration in church leadership, and Peter addresses this here, as he says that leaders often lead those who don't want to follow. And so he turns his focus from the shepherds now to the sheep, and he says in verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. We'll stop there for a second. He says, younger men, and here we have a great limitation in our translation. When we, 
when we when we talk about uh, mankind, or, or if, if we say something, an edict that's going to affect all men everywhere, we don't just mean males, right? We mean all people. But it's a way of saying things. When you're speaking of a group, you have to choose a sex. You're going to say men or people or whatnot. It has to be either masculine or feminine. Well, here it's masculine, but it's also plural. And in the original language when this was done, it's referring to both. Kind of like you could say mankind refers to both male and female. So they stick in the word men, but really, literally, the text just says you younger, likewise, be subject to your elders. So I think both sexes are in view, certainly. And the context here is not just younger and older, but rather elders and those who are not elders. Because if we're simply to submit to folks who are older than us, we are to respect them, certainly. Proverbs say, rise in the presence of the gray-haired, give them respect. But it doesn't say that we're to obey them simply because they're older. So I think it's, a, it's an issue here of, of elder and non-elder, of flock and shepherd. Shepherds. So here's, again, another... Uh, I was telling one of our elders this morning that I don't really want, like preaching this stuff. It's almost like preaching giving. I feel like you've got a vested interest in this. And so um, we, we teach it because <laughs> here it is. It's our turn to talk about it here. We're in 1 Peter 5. Even Peter put it at the end, almost like the last thing. But, uh, but here it is. So here's a principle we glean from the text. The flock should submit to the shepherds as they submit to the chief shepherd. Very important that the elders of the church are not the top dogs. The Lord Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Let's say for a second that I come over to your house and for a party. And as I come, the street is just lined with cars, but your driveway is totally empty. And so I pull up in the driveway. That's normally what I do anyway, if there's a driveway empty. I just pull up in the driveway. And you send out a little girl who's there at the party, and uh, this little girl says, Mr. Stiles, would you please move your car because the caterer is going to arrive here in a few minutes and we need the driveway free. The host requests that the driveway be empty. Now, I could overpower this little girl. I push her out of the way and say, no, I want to park here. But I wouldn't do that because I respect the host. And so I do. I respect what this little girl says too because she represents the host. That's all authority is, is when someone in any realm of authority represents the one above them. And so when the shepherds who represent the chief shepherd, submission is simply that of humility. Which is why I think Peter goes on and touches on this area of humility, which is to me even more difficult than the verses that we've just looked at, because the essence of submission is humility. In every realm, in any realm, the essence of submission is humility. If you are not humble, you will not submit. That's the bottom line. So Peter goes on and says, halfway through verse 5, he says, And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Notice he's not making, he's not saying, okay, now I'm talking to elders, or now I'm talking to those of you who are not elders. He says, all of you. Leaders and those who are not leaders in the church. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility. See, those in authority are to, are to be humble. Those under authority are to be humble. Because God is opposed to the proud that gives grace to the humble. Humility is really nothing more than an attitude that understands that we are not better than somebody else. Because when you put it in contrast with the, with the word Peter uses here for, for proud, God is opposed to the proud. Proud literally means to show ourselves above others, to show oneself above somebody else. It's to elevate you above somebody else. How often do we do this? I caught myself doing it just yesterday. It always gets me when we go to this particular restaurant and when you have a drink, they don't take, they, they take your drink to fill it up as opposed to bringing another drink and then taking this drink away. I don't know why that always gets to me. It seems a much more logical, kind way to deal with people who are paying you. And after that happened again, and I kind of said something to Kathy in my, in my mind, I got to thinking, you know what? That stems from pride. And that's really the bottom line. I know a better way. When you think you're better than somebody else, we're told God opposes that mindset and allows things to happen in your life that will bring you back down to uh, humility. I think I may have told you before about this uh, very humbling experience I had one time. <laughs> I was, it was a rainy, terrible day, and I went home for lunch. Uh, some of you are smirking, already know where it's going. <laughs> terrible day, went home for lunch, and uh, got a raincoat. And it was in the summer, and so I was wearing my raincoat, and as I was leaving, Kathy was laughing at me. I said, what's funny? And she says, you look like a flasher. Because I was wearing shorts and I had this raincoat on. Well, I get out, I park right in front of this jewelry store over here. And it's just pouring down rain. I mean, it's raining so hard, it's one of those, you know, sideways rains. And the wind is blowing and it's terrible. And I get out of the car. And just as I get out of the car, I shut the door and my coat gets stuck in the door. And I, and I look around and the owner of the jewelry store is looking out of his window, sipping coffee and laughing at me. <laughs> and so I pull it, and I pull a little harder, and it tears. I tear my raincoat. So now I'm trying to get my keys. Get my keys out, and I, and I open it. And uh, by this time, I look up, and the owner has called all the guys in the, in the jewelry store over. And they're all looking at me, and they're pointing and laughing. And I wiggle out of the door, drenched like a rat, and finally come inside humiliated. Well, later that night, had to be that night, at the mall, we were walking around, and I saw the, the owner there, the owner of the jewelry store. And I told him, I saw you laughing at me today. And he said, oh, that was you? <laughs> Should have kept my mouth shut. But instead, God has ways of keeping you humble. Because Peter uses this word here, God opposes the proud. It's not just a philosophical 
opposition. It's not just, oh, I don't like the proud. But the word oppose means that you get involved and you oppose it. And God will allow things to happen in your life to keep you humble when you're erring on the side of pride. He will. And it may not just be the raincoat. There may be more lasting effects that he will leave a character flaw in you that will keep you humble. That you'll continue to struggle with the same old sin over and over. That He may keep you humble. He may give you or allow you to have a physical weakness, a physical uh, malady to keep you humble. The Apostle Paul talked about the fact because of a great revelation he had, God allowed a thorn in his flesh. A thorn in Paul's flesh. Paul asked several times, Lord, take it away. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it there to keep you humble. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. God may, may allow that weakness to stay in order that you stay humble. There was a clubhouse one time being built by some kids that had a great little motto on the front as you walk in. It had three rules. And those three rules were, nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. Everybody act medium. Isn't that insightful for a group of kids making a clubhouse? Nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. What does that mean? <laughs> well, nobody act big. Of course, that means you don't have pride. Never forget from where you came. It's wonderful to look at where God has brought you, but never forget from where you came. You look at some of the great heroes in the Bible. In fact, I could point out some of you today, ask you to stand up, and I could mention some of your skeletons in the closet. We've all got them. Think of some big ones in the Bible. Noah, what was his big deal? He was a drunk, wasn't he? Jacob was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson had a problem with lust. David, a problem with lust. Peter denied Jesus. Thomas doubted. Paul persecuted the church. And yet God used every one of these men and women in a mighty way for his kingdom. Never forget from where God has brought you. You may be doing great things in your life, but don't never forget from where God has brought you. After David fell with Bathsheba, the Lord told David, I took you from following the sheep to being shepherd over my people Israel. Yes, you're shepherd, but don't ever forget, I took you from following those sheep. David forgot it. Nobody act big. Nobody act small either. This is a, this is a big thing in our, in our Christian, Christianese culture because humility is a virtue. And so we will paint on humility and we will act small. Uh, Chuck Swindoll calls this worm theology. And uh, it's great because that's exactly what we do. Oh, I'm nothing. Oh, I'm a worm. Oh, I'm dirt. No, you're not. Jesus didn't die for dirt. Jesus didn't die for worms. He died for humanity made in the image of God. The image of God is not dirt. The image of God is not worms. The image of God is majestic. Mankind is majestic. 
even in his fallen state. And God will take away that fallenness and restore that glory. So don't act small either, but act medium. That is, you remember from where you've come, grace. You, remember, you, you think about what, where God is taking you by grace. And so you're not at the extremes of big or small, but you're in the middle of your medium. In other words, you're humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And since God gives grace to the humble, now in verse 6, Peter gives us a very logical next step. That is, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Again, I wonder, uh, we've heard this so much, and yet I was amazed as I studied the original text here that humble yourselves is actually passive. It's a passive command. Be humbled is what it says. And yourselves is not even in there. It's speaking to us, certainly. But the command is literally, be humbled. Humbled. That is, you are allowing someone to humble you. There's a great difference in saying, Lord, I humble myself before you, and Lord, humble me. Big difference. When you say, I humble myself, you're in charge, aren't you? Everything's in control. But when you say, Lord, humble me, <laughs> now it's hard. And I think that's why Peter goes on to say, be humbled under the mighty hand of God. You can release control because God's hand is mighty. You're not releasing control to a God who's not going to be able to take care of you. But you are saying, God, humble me under your mighty hand, not under a hand that is weak. And notice it says, not only will God do the humbling, we, we let God humble, but also God will exalt us. God does the humbling, God does the exalting at the proper time. That's the part that we struggle against. We're willing to say, God, humble me, but don't make it last long. God, humble me, but, okay, Lord, I've learned my lesson, now let's get on to the exaltation part. And yet God still allows us over and over, sometimes for years, to be humbled in a circumstance so that when he exalts us at the time that is proper, it is an exaltation that gives him glory and not us. You see, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another is to give control over to God, and that scares us, which is why I think Peter gives us this last verse, verse 7, that says, Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Again, you've often heard this translated as a command. Cast all your anxiety upon him. It's not. It's not a command. It's particularly linked back with that command to be humbled. Be humbled. How? Casting all your anxiety upon him. How is it that you release control to God? How is it that you let God humble you? is that you give him all the things that you're worried about. You cast them all on him. And it's a beautiful picture. Literally, the word cast means to hurl. You hurl something. I mean, you are just getting rid of it as hard and as fast as you can. 
casting it on God because He cares for you. It's a beautiful truth, and I hope that you really will apply it to your life because if you'll do, a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry will just fall off like scales. The final principle is a beautiful truth that is humility finds its security in trusting a God who cares. There is great security in knowing that God cares. Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, says, I've learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. You can't worship and worry at the same time. It's a great insight, and it's true. And Peter says here, Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Release control that He may lift you up in due time. How do you do that? By casting all your anxiety on Him. Because He cares for you. Humility finds its security in trusting a God who cares. Are we really that defenseless when the God in whom we're trusting has a mighty hand? Are we really that vulnerable to give up control? No. It's great because we don't have a mighty hand. How much better to give control to the one who does? Are we really in jeopardy that much to give ourselves over to a God who truly cares about us? No, we're not in jeopardy one little bit. See, when you say, Lord, humble me, or may I be humbled under the mighty hand of God, what are you doing but submitting? See, the essence of authority in any realm is ultimately your relationship with Christ. Ultimately your relationship with Christ. Because if you are able to turn over all anxieties to Him, only then are you able to submit to authority. And so I really feel like if we were to grasp the truth of this passage on humility, that being in and being under authority would not be a problem. Our problem with authority is essentially our problem with humility. I don't like the way the music's done. I don't like the way the preaching's done. I don't like the way the kids' connections run. Well, you know what? I don't either sometimes. Sometimes I think these messages are terrible. But that's pride. And from the pit of hell. You know, I've often wondered, if we were to be in heaven right now, with the flesh, with our sinful nature, would, we'd even find something there to complain about, wouldn't we? We would. Because when Jesus himself was on earth doing everything right, people found something to complain about Jesus. You see, the, the problem is not so much Jesus doing it perfectly or the church or anybody else doing it perfectly. Because even if Jesus were here, we'd have a problem with him. See, one of the reasons heaven is going to be so wonderful and we will not have a complaint in the world is because what in us that causes us to complain, which is a lack of humility, will be taken away. That flesh, that sinful nature will be totally eradicated. 
Humility finds its security in trusting a God who cares. Do you have a problem with authority? Sure you do, and so do I. So let's humble ourselves. Let's be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Father, just as the soldiers spit upon Jesus and abused the authority that was certainly His, so, Lord, in our lives, too, we find ourselves like that little girl in the closet, spitting on our mom's clothes. We spit against You. We spit against all the authority You've placed over us because we're proud, because we're arrogant, because we think we know better. And so, Lord, I pray and I ask you be very gentle in answering this prayer. I pray that you would humble us as the text commands we allow. That we be humbled under your mighty hand. That you may also lift us up. You may also exalt us in due time. And Lord, we cast all our fears, all our anxieties on you and we trust you because we know you care for us. In Christ's name we pray.